Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential Television. To an outsider, the death of 32-year-old Rebecca Zahow may look like a classic case of the poor little rich girl. But Rebecca was beautiful. She was young. She was dating a successful CEO. She was living a life of glamour and privilege in one of the grandest beachfront mansions in all of California. Rebecca seemed to have the kind of life that most people only dream of. She had health, wealth, and happiness. But then she turned up dead. And police say she took her own life. But why would someone that seemingly had it all do that? I mean, what could go so wrong that some young, beautiful, healthy woman living in the lap of luxury would all of a sudden just take her own life? Well, there are a lot of answers to that question. Some people believe some, other people believe others. But despite Rebecca's seemingly picture-perfect existence, no one is immune to tragedy. And days before her death, Rebecca experienced a tragedy so large it would completely shatter the lives of everyone it touched, maybe forever, because there are some things I can tell you as a parent that I just don't think you ever get over. Rebecca was in charge of watching her boyfriend's six-year-old son, Max, when he was gravely injured. She heard a loud noise and she came out of the bathroom to check what that noise was. Becky found Max on the floor. She told me that he was unconscious and she did CPR. She felt horrible. She said it was something that she couldn't have prevented, but she did not feel guilty about it. And on the night Rebecca died, police say she received devastating news. News that the little boy, the child, the one I guess you could say she failed to protect, just wasn't going to make it. They say when Rebecca heard the little boy who was injured on her watch was very likely going to die. They say she was overwhelmed with guilt and grief and took her own life and did it according to police by throwing herself off the balcony and hanging herself. Definitely an atypical way for females to commit suicide. This is not how women typically take their own lives. They typically do it by overdosing of drugs or cutting their wrist and bleeding out. This is just simply not a common way that women tend to take their lives. But for the past seven years, every single day since that night, Rebecca's family has refused to believe the warm, smart, bubbly woman they knew committed suicide. My sister did not indicate that she was depressed, suicidal, or wanted to hurt herself. Despite the police ruling that Rebecca died at her own hand, her family says this was murder. And they believe Rebecca's killer is still out there walking free with her blood on his hands. Now, Rebecca's death was no doubt surrounded by bizarre circumstances. 
But police say there was no evidence of a killer, no DNA, no fingerprints, no sign that anyone other than Rebecca was on that balcony when she went over the railing to hang herself and take her life. No one was there, according to them, except for Rebecca. Becky wouldn't strip herself naked, bind herself in that manner, and definitely not for the world to see. She wouldn't do that. She just wouldn't. But still, her family refused to believe it. They believe that was an easy answer, an answer that just ignored too much evidence, circumstantial as it was, too much evidence. They believe that the lack of DNA actually proves Rebecca was murdered. Why was her DNA the only DNA found in areas of the house where there should have been signs of other people? Well, they believed that there were signs of only her DNA because it was wiped down. And then the killer put her DNA, her fingerprints, on everything. Because this is an area of the mansion where people would have been. Children would have been through there. Other family members would have been through there. Housekeepers would have been through there. People would have been through there. There would have been contact DNA. There would have been fingerprints. There would have been lots of evidence of traffic through the area. But when police checked, there was no DNA except Rebecca's. And the family says that could only happen if someone wiped down that area completely and then went behind that cleaning and put her DNA, her contact, rubbed her up against it, put her fingerprints there. They say there is no other explanation for there being only her DNA in this area. So their family set their sights on a visitor staying in the mansion's guest house, the brother of Rebecca's boyfriend Jonah, Adam Shacknight, and they have decided that he was involved and they have dedicated their lives to proving their theory that he killed Rebecca. In their eyes, it had to have been him. He was the one who discovered Rebecca's body naked and hanging. Mayor on emergency, what are you reporting? Yeah, uh, I, I got a girl hung herself. Okay, sir, is she yeah. still alive? You're alive! They believe he was the last person to see Rebecca alive, and he was the only other person who admitted to being there on the night Rebecca died. Because of that, Adam became the prime suspect, not in the eyes of the police, but in the eyes of Rebecca's family. And that's the story we all remember hearing. Adam removed a blue cloth which had been in her mouth after he cut her down from a second floor balcony. Zahau, who was naked, had her feet and hands bound by red rope, which authorities believe she had tied herself. That's the story that really played out in the media, in magazines, newspapers, on television, and even in court. But what a lot of people may not know, what people may not remember, is that before Rebecca's family zeroed in on Adam Shacknai, filing a wrongful death lawsuit against him and claiming they believed he was Rebecca's sole killer, they floated other theories. They floated the theory that he was not the only person that could have done it. In fact, he was not the only person they have accused. 
One theory, which was very short-lived, was that Rebecca's beauty could have led to an obsession that escalated to murder. The other was a theory that Rebecca's family was so sure was true that they filed a wrongful death lawsuit against not just Adam, but against three people. Their lawsuit claimed Adam was the one that staged Rebecca's death to look like a suicide, but they said he did not act alone. This is Episode 3 of Mansion of Secrets, The Mysterious Death of Rebecca Zahab. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Everyone who knew Rebecca Zahal uses similar words to describe her. Smart, warm, kind. But they also use physical descriptions. Beautiful, young, healthy, and someone who really cared about being in shape and took care of her body. Even the personal trainer who worked at a gym where Rebecca frequented said he couldn't have helped her if he tried. He said she was in such great shape and took such great care of herself, there was just nothing to improve on. In the early days after her death, her family feared, could looks kill? Could Rebecca's beauty have been a motive for murder? Rebecca's family knew she was very alluring to men, and they said she had many suitors over the years who became obsessed with her. Some to an unhealthy level, some maybe even to the point of being potentially dangerous. One of Rebecca's sisters recalled Rebecca telling her she never bothered to lock the mansion doors as she felt so safe in Coronado. Could someone with an unhealthy obsession, some stalker from her past, have found Rebecca and gotten into the mansion? Even Jonah said Rebecca had done a number on her ex-husband Neil, and even after the divorce, he was insistent on remaining in contact with her. And where do you look when there's a murder? You look in the immediate circle first. You always look at spouses, family members. Most people are murdered by someone they know, not by strangers. So that's the first place you look. And here's an ex that seems to be pretty still hung up on her. But this ex, Neil, was cleared immediately. And the idea that an obsessed suitor could have harmed Rebecca was somewhat glossed over. It really only became something that armchair detectives focused on. Besides, if there was someone bothering Rebecca, police surely concluded they would have found some trace of it by now. They had access to her phone records, and certainly this was a small community. They would have known something. Somebody would have known something. Housekeeper, Jonah, maybe the police had been called. Security cameras would have shown something. There's just no evidence of it. Rebecca's family quickly developed a new theory. Gone was the fear that a man from Rebecca's past could have snuck into the mansion and harmed her. And her family shifted their focus to three people, consistent with my theory that murders occur by someone you know. They focused on three people much closer to home. 
So in 2014, three years after Rebecca's death, three years after police ruled it a suicide, three years after police said there was no murder and there was no killer, Rebecca's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit and asked for a jury trial. Now, you have to understand, anybody with a couple hundred dollars in filing fees and a computer to process forms can file a lawsuit. But in order for the court to accept the lawsuit and allow it to proceed, they have to make a determination that there is some likelihood that the plaintiff could prevail, that there's some evidence that causes the court to believe that they could actually sustain their charges. So there's that. And the case was accepted. Now, there's also a big difference between a wrongful death lawsuit and a criminal prosecution. It's different in a number of ways. And let me talk about that a little bit so we understand, because a lot of people have been frustrated that they could bring a lawsuit for wrongful death, but the police still did nothing. There are different standards of proof based on what the stakes are. And if you file a civil suit and it's purely for money damages, then the standard is preponderance of evidence, 5149. The jury is instructed, if you determine that it's more likely than not that what the plaintiff says occurred, then you must find for the plaintiff. You don't have to feel strongly about it, just if you feel like it's more likely than not that what they say occurred occurred, then you find for the plaintiff. It can be 51-49, yeah, probably happened, 49% probably didn't happen. That's enough, very low standard. Then the next standard is what's called clear and convincing evidence. This is a much higher standard than 5149. This is something where the evidence needs to be clear and it needs to be very convincing that what the plaintiff says happened, likely happened. And then the third standard is what we always hear about beyond a reasonable doubt. And that is what's used in criminal cases. And let me tell you why that's used in criminal cases. In America, to deprive someone of their liberty is and should be a very high standard. If you're going to take somebody out of the world, off the street, and put them in a cage for months, years, or the rest of their life, or give them the death penalty, the standard should be very, very high. You should prove that they did what you say they did beyond any reasonable doubt, meaning that 12 people should go into a room, discuss this, and there be no issue about which reasonable folks could differ. That 12 people, if they're being reasonable, there's just no room for error. There's just no wiggle room here. This is not something reasonable people could argue about. So that is a very high standard. Now, prosecutors have some stair steps they can use to get there. For example, if they don't want to take the weight of the decision, they can convene a grand jury. It's often been said, you convene a grand jury, you could indict a ham sandwich. And what that means is, when you convene a grand jury, all that's presented is the prosecution's case. Not one shred of defense evidence is presented. Only the prosecution's case. They just go in there to this group of people that may be 25, 30, 40 people, whatever, and they say, we want to bring charges against this individual for this crime, 
and here's all the reasons we think we should. And there's not one voice, not one single voice to say, hey, wait a minute. You're not getting the full story. It's just the prosecution's case. And let me tell you, your story goes a whole lot better when you're the only one telling it. So going to a grand jury and talking them into bringing charges, which doesn't mean somebody's going to jail, doesn't mean somebody's going to be deprived of their liberty. It just means the grand jury is saying this is worthy of taking to trial. Now, there's also something very important about bringing a civil suit if you're not getting the prosecution to move the way you want them to do. You see, in the prosecution of a crime, the defendant never has to speak. The prosecution can send out an investigator, but they don't get a chance to do discovery. They don't get a chance to say, defendant, give me all your documents. Defendant, tell me your alibi. Defendant, sit down. I want to take your deposition. You say, well, they have a right to question the defendant. No, they don't. Defendant never has to say a single word about where they were, who they were with, when they were there. So they don't ever get a chance to do that. But in a civil case, the defendant does have to speak. A deposition can be taken. Phone records can be gotten. Questions can be asked. So lots of discovery can be gotten that the police couldn't get. So if it's within the statute of limitations, you can then take all that information and say, here you go, Mr. Prosecutor. Here's all this evidence we found in the civil trial. What do you think of me now? So that can be very empowering to a prosecutor. I tell you all that to tell you this. Even after all that discovery, even after deposing Adam Shacknai, even after him having to answer questions about her death and his whereabouts, the prosecutors still declined to press charges. But on the civil side, the suit was filed by Rebecca's mother, sister, and late father, and it was for wrongful death. And in that filing, they detailed what they believed at that time happened on the night Rebecca died and who did it. And let me tell you, the picture they painted was truly chilling. The lawsuit details what Rebecca's family believes was a sinister murder plot. It reads like a best-selling thriller, and it has all the elements you'd need for a stereotypical page-turner or a made-for-TV movie. A staged suicide, a set of twins with a diabolical plan, a woman scorned, a mother hell-bent on avenging her son, a beautiful victim, and a deadly end. The stakes could not have been higher. Rebecca's family accused, as I said earlier, three people of conspiring to kill Rebecca, Jonah's brother, Adam Shacknai, Jonah's ex-wife, and Max's mom, Max being the young man who was injured, and Dina Shacknai, and Dina's twin sister, Nina Romano. Now, I want to make something clear before we go any further. This was a lawsuit based solely on a theory put forth by Rebecca's family and their legal team. And according to police, Adam and Dina Shacknai and Nina Romano are 100% innocent. They were never suspects. They were never people of interest. And they were never charged. This drove Rebecca's family insane. But the family eventually dropped Dina and Nina from their lawsuit and issued a public apology after indisputable evidence proved Dina was nowhere near the mansion on the night Rebecca died. 
After that, Rebecca's family changed their minds about what they think happened and stated they now firmly believe Adam acted alone. But in their original lawsuit, the one filed first in 2014, they painted Dina and Nina as the masterminds. And Adam is the guy who executed their evil plan and executed Rebecca. Police have said this is not true. This is not what happened. Our office concluded that the cause of death was hanging and the manner of death was suicide. So where and how did Rebecca's family even come up with this idea? How did they come to believe so strongly that this is what happened to their beloved Rebecca? Well, it all started with a witness who said he spotted a mystery woman standing on the porch of the Spreckles mansion on the night Rebecca died. And Rebecca's family wholeheartedly believed that woman was Dina Shacknai. The witness claimed the woman he saw had dark hair. Dina Shacknai, the woman whose son lay in a hospital bed because of Rebecca, the woman who was only separated from Jonah when he began dating Rebecca, happened to also have dark hair. Was she there to avenge her son's accident? But there were some major problems with what that witness saw. He claimed the woman's dark hair was long. Dina was a brunette. Her hair was dark, but it was shorter at the time. The witness also said the woman he saw on the porch was about maybe 200 pounds. Dina, on the other hand, was fit, slender, and probably weighed less than 140 pounds. Now, many of you probably know that I've spent a lot of my professional career in the litigation arena. I had a trial science firm called Courtroom Sciences. I've been involved in hundreds of trials. And some of those, many of those, have been criminal trials, and some have involved eyewitness testimony. And let me say that eyewitness testimony is the second most persuasive thing that a jury lists when they bring back a conviction, second only to a confession, second only to a confession. So if a defendant confesses and then an eyewitness says they saw what happened, That's the one-two punch right there. Here's the problem. Eyewitness testimony is highly unreliable. You can put four people on four different corners in an intersection and have a car accident and interview four of them individually, and you wouldn't believe they were looking at the same accident because they report different color of cars, different speeds, eyewitnesses who have no agenda, but yet they see things differently. In fact, of the nation's first 130 convictions that have been overturned by DNA, 78% of them involved flawed eyewitness testimony. Now think about what I just said. Over three-fourths of them were convicted at least in part based on eyewitness testimony. Someone got on the stand and said, I saw him or her do it, and they were wrong. At 10 feet away, you cannot see the eyelashes on a person's face. At 200 feet away, you can't even see their eyes. At 500 feet away, you can see a head, but no features at all. It's just a bump. But here's what happens. It's called gestalt we tend to fill in gaps because our mind wants to close things. When you look at the Big Dipper in the sky, there's no Big Dipper up there. There are just some stars. Our mind connects them with lines to make a Big Dipper. 
The Innocence Project has really been working hard since the advent of DNA, and 358 people sentenced to death have been exonerated. And remember what I said the standard was? How high the standard has to be to deprive someone of their liberty or their life. It has to be a very high standard where 12 people say, there's nothing here about which we could disagree. They may have heard a confession. They may have heard eyewitness testimony. But 358 people sentenced to death have been exonerated. And 71% of those death sentences involved misidentification by eyewitnesses. What you see is greatly influenced by fear, emotion, terror, stress. You would think those things make something stand out, but they don't. So the eyewitness said he saw this dark-haired woman, and the leap was it could be Dina. But in a twist, the woman that witness saw, a woman who looked a lot like Dina, was actually her twin sister, Nina. And she was there, detectives confirmed. Nina texted Rebecca on the day she died and asked her if she could come to the Spreckles mansion to talk about Max's accident. Nina wanted answers, and she admits she went there with every intention of getting those answers from Rebecca. Now, this wasn't the first time Nina had attempted to question Rebecca about Max's death. She says she asked her what happened when she first got to town, but she just did not think Rebecca's answers added up. Rebecca, what happened? I heard Max, he was walking up the stairs and he had a cardiac arrest. I said, I, that makes no sense to me. I said, he's six years old. It's a healthy boy. I don't understand. And she just looked at me and she said, I know. And that was it. And I said, where did he fall from? Did he fall from the first set of stairs, the little landing, the next set of stairs going up, the top landing by the bedrooms? Where did he fall from? She said twice. He fell from the bedroom. He fell from the bedroom. And I looked at her and I said, well, how do you know that? I thought you didn't see him. No answer. So Nina was staying at her sister's house, which was close by to the Spreckles mansion. Nina says she went there hours before Rebecca died, knocked on the door. Nobody answered. She just left. Nina claims she went over there that night for an explanation and for Rebecca to show her where she found Max. I just wanted to see for myself. That's why I went there. I just wanted her to show me how she found him. Because I didn't understand. But I went up to the front door and rang the bell, nothing. Rang the bell a second time, nothing. You know, knocked on the door, like looked through the glass, nothing. Kitchen was dark, everything was up. So I thought, well, that's kind of strange because her car's here, that light's on, that's weird. So then I just thought, Maybe she just doesn't want to talk to me. So I turned around and I left right away. And I walked right back to my sister's house, got ready for bed and went to sleep. So that was what the witness saw. Nina, not Dina, standing on the porch trying to speak to Rebecca. Nina Romano was the last person to text Rebecca asking if she could come over. Rebecca did not reply. Both Nina and her sister Dina denied any involvement in Rebecca's death. And Dina said it makes no sense that they would commit murder. But Rebecca's family disagreed. Now, I'm going to read you some excerpts directly from this lawsuit, straight from the document which I have here, a document that Rebecca's family attorney, Keith Greer, filed on their behalf in 2014. Remember, again, 
There was no physical evidence supporting Dina, Nina, or Adam's involvement in Rebecca's death. This is just what Rebecca's family at one point believed had taken place. In this suit, they stated their theory at the time, which many called a conspiracy theory. The lawsuit stated, and I quote, On or around the morning of July 13, 2011, defendants Adam, Dina, and Nina conspired to plan and did in fact enter into a common scheme of conduct with the intent to murder Rebecca in Coronado, California, and did in fact murder Rebecca by each of them personally committing one or more of the following acts in furtherance of the common scheme and conspiracy. Striking Rebecca on the head multiple times with a blunt instrument, physically restraining her, further restraining her by binding her legs with tape, gagging her, binding her hands behind her back with rope, binding her ankles together with rope, removing the previously placed tape from her legs, strangling her to the point of unconsciousness or death, making and placing a rope noose around her neck, tying the other end of the rope leading to the noose to a bed, carrying her to the adjacent balcony and pushing her over the railing of the balcony, causing her to fall and, if she was still alive at the time, to then die by asphyxiation, end quote. I want to read you another important quote from the lawsuit. Because the only individuals who know the true facts and sequence of events with absolute certainty are the decedent Rebecca and the defendants themselves, the allegations made herein are made on information and belief based on the evidence that has been uncovered to date. End quote. Now, this last line is important. It basically states none of this is certain. It's just their belief based on the evidence as they interpret it. And, of course, they're entitled to that interpretation. The lawsuit painted a really unflattering picture of Dina, painted her as an ex with an axe to grind. It accused her of not only confronting and threatening Rebecca in the past, being unable to control her anger and ridiculing and publicly demeaning Rebecca over Max's accident, but it also said Dina wasn't just angry about Max and his injury. She had a problem with Rebecca long before that. Jonah and I shared equal parenting time, and Rebecca did live with Jonah. I always had trust issues with Rebecca, particularly after we met, and she neglected to share very important information with me, such as her legal name. She left out she was married, and the fact that she had a shoplifting arrest. Rebecca's family claimed Dina was extremely jealous over Rebecca's relationship with her ex-husband Jonah and of Rebecca's growing relationship with her son, Max. After all, Dina and Jonah were only separated, not even divorced yet, when he started dating Rebecca. Now, Jonah himself described Dina's relationship with Rebecca as, quote, on the edge of civil. And you will remember he wanted Rebecca not to come to the hospital. Before Dina arrived to see Max, he was worried that if Dina saw Rebecca there, after he was injured on Rebecca's watch, well, it just could have been a big scene, bad situation. So he asked her to stay away. I suggested that she go back to the house. Um, we were desperately trying to get hold of Max's mom, Dina. Uh, and I was very concerned that if Dina had sort of brushed in and seen Max in this condition and Rebecca there, uh, that she, 
it would have been an incident. It would have been unpleasant. And the last thing we needed was to take any attention away from Max. So the lawsuit alleges that Dina, furious over Max's injuries, and her sister Nina went over to the mansion to confront Rebecca, and that's when Nina was seen on the front porch by a witness. Adam was, as he stated, fast asleep in the guest house after taking an ambient. Rebecca's family says they believe that Rebecca was confronted, and the dirt found on the bottoms of her feet proves she tried to flee the property and escape, but never made it out alive. Her family believes she was then attacked by Dina and Nina, hit in the head four times with a hard, blunt object, which severely injured her and rendered her unconscious. That's when they believe Adam, hearing all the commotion, woke up and saw Rebecca knocked out. They believe that then all three realized they had a problem if Rebecca woke up and lived to tell someone about the attack, so they conspired to murder her, feeling like they had no choice. They had to silence her and silence her for good. Now, Rebecca did have four subgaleal hemorrhages or hemorrhages under the surface of the scalp. So, she could have woken up and survived. And these hemorrhages just simply mean that she had been hit in the head enough to incapacitate her, and she was bleeding. And we don't know how serious that could have been in terms of concussion, but we do know that it's very possible that she could have survived that. Rebecca's family alleged the threesome's next move was to have Adam carry Rebecca back into the house stripper of her clothes. They believe they later got rid of them because the clothes Rebecca was last seen wearing were never found at the scene. What happened to those clothes? Where are they? Then, based on tape residue that was found on Rebecca's legs, her family believes that Adam restrained her with tape, gagged her, and left her taped up like that while the three of them planned what to do next. Since no tape was similar adhesive, was found at the scene, her family believes, they removed it, just like they removed the clothes, got rid of it all after killing Rebecca. Now, Rebecca's family said they believed since Dina had previously lived in the mansion, she was the one who would be familiar with where things were. And so, therefore, in their eyes, Dina must have been the one who found the red tow rope that was tied in a noose around Rebecca's neck. They further allege that based on the knots having nautical qualities and Adam being a tugboat captain with experience tying nautical knots, that he was the one who tied Rebecca up. Now, the police later refuted that fact, saying the knots were actually not so complicated and Rebecca could have reasonably tied them herself. The suit states Rebecca died of asphyxiation, so her family believes she was either strangled before she was hanged or strangled by dangling from the rope. And since the type of injury to Rebecca's throat were the type that more commonly occurs with strangulation and is unlikely to occur with a hanging, they lean towards the theory that she was strangled before she went over the balcony. And they say because of the sheer amount of strength it would take to create such an injury, they believe Adam must have been the one who choked Rebecca to death. Now, all of this seems to hang together. I mean, it flows, right? You can see how if you were writing a script and you were going to have someone play this out and recreate it, you can see how this does make logical behavioral flow sense. There's just no real evidence for it. 
The lawsuit also accused all three of them as working together and covering for each other, taking turns keeping watch, removing evidence, wiping down the scene. This would certainly explain why no DNA was found at the scene, because her family believed they had cleaned it up. And lastly, the lawsuit states, and I quote, Once they murdered Rebecca, Dina instructed Adam to leave a cryptic message on the door outside the room where the murder was committed. The message was painted using black paint at a height that is consistent with an individual who is approximately the height of Adam. The message read, She saved him. Can you save her? Adam, based on black paint residue found on the noose, then tightened the noose around the neck and attached the rope to the base of the bed. Adam then picked up Rebecca, then threw her over the edge of the adjacent balcony. Either Dina or Nina was sitting on the bed to which the rope was secured to ensure that the bed remained anchored to the floor as evidenced by the bed having moved less than a foot. While the scheme was being perpetrated, defendants Dina and Nina also acted as lookouts to avoid detection and encouraged Adam to commit the acts alleged herein. Although each of the defendants was in part responsible for putting the decedent in harm's way, none of them made any effort to help her or save her from the injuries that eventually resulted in her death. The quote goes on to say the defendants were careful to remove any evidence of their involvement, including the disposal of the tape and Rebecca's clothes. Once the staging was complete, the defendants fled the scene, instructing Adam to call the police in the early morning with claims of suicide. End of quote. As I said, that paints quite the chilling picture. Nina and Dina both say they were horrified to learn that this was being pinned on them. Dina called it a surreal nightmare. She said no one could ever understand what it's like to not only lose your young son, but then to know you are innocent and yet be accused of a heinous and unthinkable crime. And think about this. Is that really what a mother, a mother who is keeping vigil by her son's bedside at a children's hospital, has the time to do? hatch a plot to go attack her ex-husband's girlfriend for revenge? Would she have really taken the time to leave Max's side for anything? She probably hated to even leave him for a second to eat or sleep or go to the bathroom. God forbid he fluttered his eyes or worse passed away and she wasn't there. The accident had only happened a day ago. Psychologically, when you look at the maternal bond, there is no way a mother would waste her time going to confront Rebecca at the mansion and seek revenge when she was worried about her son. So on its face, this theory just didn't hold water. Maybe down the line, after the child passed away, a parent might be so filled with grief that they could want to confront the person they deemed responsible or seek revenge. But not when your son needs you by his side and not when you still have hope that the swelling in his brain is going to diminish and he's going to open his eyes and call your name. That is just not the time that you decide to make some ninja revenge trip to get even with the woman you think could be responsible. Just doesn't add up to me. 
Almost four years would go by before Dina and Nina's names would be dropped from the lawsuit. Four years they would be targets in this lawsuit before they were eventually cleared because security surveillance showed Dina was at the hospital at the time investigators determined Rebecca died at the Spreckles Mansion. It just took years, apparently, to get a hold of that video evidence. That, to me, is stunning. That that could not have been established before four years, that that could not be established before the lawsuit was filed. The attorney for Rebecca's family, Keith Greer, issued a public apology. He did so at a press conference in 2017. Dina was relieved to finally be vindicated. She said people don't understand what it's like to be innocent yet accused. And make no mistake, we live in an era of guilt by accusation. Not just by association, guilt by accusation. The facts just weren't there. And she hopes wherever Max is, that he's watching and knows that they have been vindicated. It appears that to the extent that you can, Dina may have recovered from being falsely accused, but as a mother, she will never get over the death of her son. According to a 2018 interview with Town & Country magazine, Dina still keeps a swing set her son once played on, aging and sun-bleached, sitting unused in her yard. Maxie was the biggest gift in my life. When I woke up and I saw him every day, and he had an enormous smile, I remember looking at him thinking, I won the lottery. I just felt like I won the lottery every day. She also keeps the little boy's room exactly as he left it when he passed away at just six years old. And despite being falsely accused, Dina isn't letting go of the idea that something sinister may have happened behind those mansion walls that no one knows about to this day. Dina still isn't sure that her son Max's death was an accident. She even asked for his death to be reinvestigated. I had serious questions about whether Max's death was accidental. The findings they presented never made sense to me. The scenario put forth was that he decided to run down the hall and jump over a railing or tripped and grabbed onto a chandelier, took the chandelier down, and this accident culminated in his death. That was preposterous. Maxie's center of gravity was too low. He wouldn't have been able to go over that balcony. It defies the laws of physics. She didn't think her son was a daredevil, and she didn't buy that he was zipping around on a scooter over a balcony. Plus, a doctor had told her Max may have been injured before his fall. As a mother, she was not going to just let that detail go and write this off as an accident. The loss was too great. The pain was too great. She needs answers. Dina hired a private firm called Exponent to investigate Max's fall. They're pretty well known and have analyzed the death of James Dean and the Oklahoma City bombings. Now, if you don't have experience in criminal cases, let me tell you, sometimes families hire their own private investigation firms. And you can't blame people that do this because the wheels of justice turn very slowly. And sometimes it's just hard to sit back and wait for police to investigate your case, particularly if it's one of 10, 20, 30, or 100 that they have to work on. 
So families that have the means sometimes bring in private investigation firms. Sometimes they help, sometimes they get in the way. Oftentimes, they're given a mandate. They're charged with not just finding out what happened, but trying to find proof that something specific happened or did not happen. That can create what we call confirmation bias, where we only see those things that support that which we believe, that which we want to be the case. Private investigators, particularly when children have been lost and pain is so great, become very invested in the case and can bond very strongly with their client and lose their objectivity. So while a private investigator can speed things along, they can also create bias and sometimes get in the way of police. They can contaminate witnesses. They can contaminate evidence. They can create biases that compromise what may have otherwise been a good witness if something goes down a particular road. Not intentionally, but they can create problems. Sometimes police are very confounded by their involvement. It's kind of like families that sometimes will put up a big reward, and police are like just shaking their heads. If you offer too much money, you get every crackpot in the world coming out of the woodwork, hoping that somehow or another they'll stumble into something, and it just covers them up and absorbs resources they don't need. So what may seem like commonsensical thinking, good reasoning, like private investigators and rewards can get in the way at times. But they did. They did begin to investigate, and there was an expert doctor who concluded that Max's center of gravity was just too low to go over the railings with the scooter. And you've all been in a playground where you got on a seesaw or a teeter-totter, and there's always that tipping point in the middle, and if you get too much weight on one end, then it causes the other end to fly up in the air. Well, that means the center of gravity is off. You've got too much weight up high or too much weight down low. What this doctor concluded that Max's weight on this scooter with his hips and his legs, the weight was concentrated so low in his body that for him to just tip over a railing without some kind of help some kind of velocity or some other force on his body just didn't make sense. And railings, of course, are designed with just that in mind. So you don't lean against them and just flip over. And certainly that would be true of a six-year-old. They're designed to keep adults from just flipping over if they lean against them. And certainly a six-year-old who is three feet something tall, it just doesn't make sense unless something other force was acting on this young boy. Velocity on the scooter or hitting something and throwing him in the air, it just doesn't make sense that he would just go over that rail. The same doctor also said shag carpeting on the landing would have prevented his scooter from going fast enough to create the velocity I mentioned to go over the railing, and Max didn't have any cuts on his hands which common sense tells you he might well have had had he been reaching for the low-hanging chandelier to try and break his fall. And that chandelier was on the ground on the first floor, which suggested he did grab for it, he did hang on to it, and his weight pulled it out of the ceiling. 
We tried to replicate the situation, but couldn't. And there are all kinds of problems with accident and crime reconstruction. Crime reconstruction is definitely a part of forensic science. And it's when you approach a situation and you use reasoning, physical evidence, scientific methodologies, all of these things that interrelate to look at the different possibilities of what could have happened. But there are so many unknowns, you don't know if you are reconstructing the forces in play at the time. You're reconstructing your theory. You're not reconstructing what took place because you don't know unless there's some kind of video evidence or something that tells you what forces were happening at the time. How fast was the boy going? Was he leaning left? Was he leaning right? Did he hit something? Did he lose control? You just don't know, so you can't reconstruct something just out of the blue. Now, the surprising thing is even after being blamed for four years, Dina still says she does believe that Rebecca, in fact, may have been murdered. She makes it clear that she damn sure didn't do it, and that's been proven beyond question. But she still does believe that Rebecca may very well have been murdered. It's pretty shocking considering how she was dragged into this by Rebecca's family as a suspect. She also says she believes Rebecca's death and Max's death are somehow linked. She doesn't know how or why, but just believes that they have to be somehow linked. But if she's right, Adam wasn't even in town when Max was harmed. Could there be an unknown suspect out there? What could have happened? Could something have happened that only Rebecca knew? Remember, in her sister Zena's 911 call, you can hear Rebecca ordering her sister, quote, don't open that door. Now think in your mind what's going on at the time. Rebecca and her sister have walked out onto the balcony, seen the chandelier ripped from the ceiling, looked over the railing, and see the child with blood and this chandelier. Obviously a disastrous situation. You go into high gear. There is one priority and one priority, and that is attend to this child who appears to be gravely injured. Where in that dialogue do the four words, don't open that door? Where in the logic of the situation do those four words fit? Was there something she was hiding in the mansion that day that she didn't want EMTs to see? What are you reporting? Hello, um, my sister is trying to resuscitate him. Resuscitate who? Where are you calling from? Where are you calling from? Ocean Boulevard. Dina isn't sure this was a suicide, but she also doesn't see how Adam would commit such a rageful act. As she says, he barely knew Rebecca. She says she won't stop fighting for answers. As of now, she and the family have not joined forces to work together. Now, throughout the years, Adam really hasn't done himself any favors as far as his public image goes. He doesn't come off great in the media, didn't come off great on the stand. He's gruff, unemotional, and the phrases he sometimes uses like, I got a girl hung herself, 
where Winnie accused Rebecca's family of being, quote, posers. I'm standing tall. I'm not worried about these posers. Doesn't exactly make him seem like the innocent bystander police say he was. But come on, it is a big leap from lacking social polish to being guilty of murder. But the fact that Rebecca's family was so sure it was Dina and Nina and then poof it wasn't, and now are so sure it was Adam, could they be wrong again? Is there a chance Adam Shackney is the third victim of this tragedy, an innocent man cast under a shadow of doubt by Rebecca's grieving family? I can tell you, once prosecutors have gone after someone as a target in a murder case, for example, bringing charges against a second potential is very, very difficult because you get in front of a jury and say, you know what, they're standing here telling you how sure they are. It's a very high standard. They're going to deprive this man or woman of their life or their liberty. And they were down here six months ago telling another jury exactly the same thing about somebody else. What is this, pitch till you win? We just, we just come down here and prosecute people till we convince somebody that this is the one? It makes it really hard. It's like the little boy who cried wolf. Well, I think it was Dina and Nina. No, I think it was Adam. You begin to lose credibility. Was Adam just at the wrong place at the wrong time? Police cleared him shortly after he discovered Rebecca's body, but for years her family has insisted he was the one who killed her. But are they wrong in pointing the finger at Adam just because he was the one who was there? Are they wrong? Maybe not about the fact that their beloved sister and daughter was murdered. Hell, even Dina, who has been tormented by all of this and unfairly blamed, still thinks this seems like it could have been murder, but maybe wrong in the unwavering belief that Adam is the killer. Maybe they're right that she was murdered, but they just don't have the right culprit. I can't tell you how many times I have talked to defendants who wind up getting charged because they were the one that found the body. And I can't tell you how many times I have had defendants tell me they walked right past a dead body because they said, no way I'm going to be the one that finds that body because I'm going to be the first one they look at. But attorney Keith Greer didn't let this video evidence clearing Dina and Nina stray him too far off course. He swiftly stated, that he still believed Rebecca had been murdered, as described in the family's lawsuit, just simply modifying it to Adam acting alone. The motive was different now, though. Now the family believes Adam wasn't helping cover up a revenge attack. He was covering up his own sexual assault of Rebecca. The proof? Well, the proof her family believes lies in evidence found on not one but two knives one with Rebecca's blood on the handle. Rebecca's family has vowed to stop at nothing to prove she was murdered, even to the point of digging up Rebecca's body, raising her from the grave, exhuming her years after her death. I was involved with this family when that happened. What clues did her body hold? Plus, do secret notes Rebecca left behind tell a different story? All of that and more in the next episode of Mansion of Secrets. 
the mysterious death of Rebecca Zahal. I'm Dr. Phil. Mm-hmm.